0: listening to the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. This episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is sponsored by the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House in Cranbrook, BC. I know after a hot day outside or for me it's a hot day working outside, the last thing I feel like doing is standing over a hot stove or a barbecue to make dinner. So why not head down to the hideout, sit in some AC, enjoy a cold beer, and have your food brought right to you. With food that is prepared by Red Seal chefs and local ingredients used wherever possible, it is hard to beat the menu at the hideout. Everything from pub food to German and even seafood like mussels, salmon, and halibut. So, Thanks to the folks at the hideout for their continuing support of what we do here. Also, thanks to iHunter for being an episode supporter. If you guys still haven't taken advantage of their offer, they are still offering 20% off your first year of their public land subscription. That's for all the apps that they have rolling right now. BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. So the way you take advantage of that, head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THCPODCAST when you subscribe to the public land subscription. Again, all that information can be found down in the show notes. Show notes, sorry, so you can check that out after the podcast is over. Right on, thanks, guys. Cool. Show
1: the show notes. Show notes. It's like Canadian, like a boot. Newts. The notes in the show notes. <laughs> hey, everybody! We are joined in this episode by Dr. Lee Foot, and you are a professor emeritus which means retired right that's right (laughs) yeah from the University of Alberta and you were in the faculty of agriculture life and environmental sciences slash renewal renewable resources department is that correct that's 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 me so that that sounds like our Ministry here in British Columbia, the Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development, where a committee came up with the name and to satisfy everybody, it's like it all. Yeah, a so John you know, Snowball, not just, the, not just like the faculty of. Yeah, what would it be? Renewable resources. I think agriculture could fit into renewable resources. That keep everybody happy. Yeah, we are in the
2: faculty of agriculture, actually. Uh, so it, it has a very land uh, land based appeals pretty nice way to go because a lot of the same principles apply.
1: Cool. And you're joining us from Burnaby? Yeah. We've moved
2: over we to Burnaby there now, right? Yeah. So I'm a newbie to BC. I'm really enjoying discovering
1: this place. Hey, on the west coast and you're going crabbing tomorrow? That's that was the deal.
2: I'm yeah. actually driving tomorrow. I was crabbing last week. Uh, I've managed to outsmart crabs but prawns still escape me. I'm not as smart as your average spot prawn.
1: <laughs> mm. Well, we all got to have challenges in our retirement. <laughs> so now that you're a West Coaster here in British Columbia, just don't sign any hunting and trapping ban petitions while you're out and about. So. Why not to. <laughs> and I, I'm, we're, uh, I'm
3: just waiting until Lee gets outed on the West Coast as a hunter. <laughs>
1: We get lots of hunters on the west coast. People always talk about that, but I'm like, I think there's probably more hunters in the lower mainland than, than the rest of BC. So, um, hey, we're also joined um, today. With the guest here is uh, Matt Basco. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing what? really well,
3: Mark. And so Curtis. Matt was
1: Matt was on episode 11. Yeah, welcome that back. That was like it was great. 40 episodes ago. Wow. Yeah, that was
0: a long time ago.
1: Yeah. We drove, drove up to Edmonton, sat in your office. Now we're virtual. So
3: yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I just finished the duck hunt that morning with Lee.
1: That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you told that the, you told the, the amazing story about scout and the, and the roebuck hunt. Yes. If you're yes. listening to this, and you have not heard Matt tell that story, go back to episode 11, amazing storyteller. So, Matt, you are the um, this has changed since uh, our episode before a little bit. You're the director of Wildlife Health and Licensing. Yes. With Alberta Environment and Parks. Yes. Right on. Well, thanks for joining us, Um, fellas. I have to say right out of the gate here that you you guys are like we're super prepared and like keen like firing emails with questions and topics and Lee had all of these things today and um, it it just blew me away and it's like well this is this is going to be easy because you guys are gonna you got everything all all teed up but I want to before we get started um, I want to ask you so. Out of everything that you've seen flying back and forth in, in the topics um, by emails, Matt, what is the most important thing that you want to make sure you get to speak about?
3: Well, which one? You know, the, there's, there's a few. I, I would like to talk about the relevance of not only hunting and angling in Canada. Uh, But I'd also like to uh, discuss the relevance of wildlife to the broader public. And that's important, uh, especially in terms of how we manage wildlife and in turn, how we manage hunting. So I believe that that the success on that is tied very closely to Mm. the acceptance by the the broader, broader public and that in turn influences funding influences the recognition so i would like to do that um, secondly i i would like to discuss chronic wasting disease which i brought up last time as one
1: of the most mm. important issues absolutely huh? absolutely cool lee well I, you I know i just want to make sure i don't I don't force you guys right to the end, and you're going like, oh. No, I,
2: I think I'm going to go real west coast on you here, Mark. Um, Matt is one of the, the finest wildlife managers and operational guys. He's right in the thick of it. As a retiree, I have the a privilege and the luxury of being a daydreamer. So a lot of what I would like to talk about are the kind of discussions we would have on the way to a duck blind at 5 a.m. on a cold November morning. No, no, we're, we're nope. not going to do that today, Lee. Well, we would probably trash talk each other's dogs a little bit. but
3: yeah, We would start with that.
2: And then, yeah. And then, and
3: then it would just go south.
2: But one of the things that, and this is a little woo-woo and touchy-feely, so pardon me, it'll probably fly better here than it would in Alberta. But I think at our core, we really need to ask hunters to be honest with themselves and do some introspective thinking about what hunting means to them, what the rewards they get, and what the public sees. And the difference in those two can be a big gulf. We're very self-referential, we're a bit insular, and we we talk to other hunters, and we really need to open up and spread our wings Mm -hmm. and invite others into this activity. And I don't normally call it a sport, because that raises some red flags, but we need to invite a lot of people in and show that it's a meaningful, experiential, heartfelt activity and it's welcome to all. We just can't live on as a hunting public at three to 4% of the population. We'll ev- eventually will be uh, voted out of existence, uh, just like cockfighting or something like that. You know, they, they're just not gonna allow that to go on if we don't show greater representation, greater sensitivity, greater awareness of our, our necessity in a, the grand scheme of things.
1: Fantastic. You know, That's Mark- good, uh, good topic.
3: What, what's interesting is um, you very kindly complimented Lee and I on being prepared and it's not as much as being prepared as essentially sharing the discussions that Lee and myself and other members of our hunter, hunting and angling network in Alberta uh, have had over the last few years mm. and we haven't met since before COVID, but we still discuss these issues uh, as they are very relevant. So we're, we're quite practiced in in these discussions, but I think it's time to bring them uh, out to the broader public and your listeners.
1: Yeah, no, that that's that's um, that's that's great. And we actually kind of like set this up because you kind of offered about about this uh, to two years ago. So it's taken us a bit of time to get here. But uh, um, so, I got a couple of questions for you Matt but so, I don't lose this um I wanna get you to speak a little bit about Valgeist, so um Valgeist passed away um but since we published our last episode, and Matt, I know you know him and and his work and um I just want you to kind of tell the audience about the value you knew and what he did and sure
3: so Valgeist was uh, by Canadian standards and by international standards, one of the most prolific and well-respected authors and biologists. Um, I can't begin to say how many scientific papers he was primary author on, uh, as well as a number of popular books. Um, He was a strong advocate for hunting He was a strong advocate against threats to hunting, including that of game ranching. Um, He was very opinionated, very controversial, but a true mentor to many biologists in North America. Uh, His views were very strong. And because of his work, especially in the field of uh, the management of bighorn sheep and other ungulates, Uh, the science has moved ahead tremendously so you know Val was really important in that regard to many biologists but also to many hunters he was that well known so I had the pleasure of being able to text Val almost daily um, over the last year until you know a few weeks ago when he got quite ill and uh, and even in that time he was very prolific very willing to discuss his knowledge and share that with everybody and i know that he uh was the keynote speaker for um sci i believe um for the bc interior uh, last spring i believe and uh so he was still out there um in the public eye um, saying great things, so uh, it's it's a real loss to the uh, community, not only of hunters but biologists and conservation-oriented folks. And as as we know, one of Val's most famous contributions is probably the co-authoring of the North American model of uh, wildlife conservation. So that uh, that is a real feather in his cap right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. The revision to that, the new book that just came out about two years, two years ago. If um, that's it right there, yeah. that's holding it up. Um, yeah. If you don't, if you don't have that book on your bookshelf as a hunter conservationist, you should, um, and be able to speak to it, and to be able to speak to. Um, Yeah, I think some of the controversy that surrounds it and stuff too, but um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of Val's words uh, in there. I've got some of his books on sheep, uh, sheep management, uh, the times he spent living with uh, stone sheep herds in northern British Columbia, sort of one of I think he was like one of the people that was sort of pioneering um, behavioral biology. at at, at his time I remember because I remember not that long ago you know you know well-learned person friend of mine hunter science kinda guy he was he of like what the heck is behavioral you know biology or ecology you know kinda in reference to to you know one of his titles and yeah I mean he lived right with this stone sheep herds and kinda under you know got into all that stuff it's sorta like okay like she's in charge and that's hers and that's hers from the year before um those two don't like each other those two are best friends this is kind of the dynamics going like kind of looking at wildlife like that whole way of looking at their you know the complexities of their social structures and interactions and stuff and and uh, i really like that in in um in his sheep book
2: you know mark periodically that that's a great observer like that will pop up the conrad Lorenzes or the temple grandins or Val geist that have a way of seeing into the social dynamics of a of a wildlife or, or or non-human organism you know jane goodall did it as well it doesn't have to just be on hunted species but mm-hmm. i would contend that the same observational skills those folks are applying are the same ones that are honed to a fine edge by being out and being hunting or analyzing a, a spread of decoys, or thinking about patterning of, of bull elk or white-tailed deer, that's where you're getting inside the head of an animal and you're getting out of your own head. And and you have to step back and make sense of it at some point. You're not creating a fantasy or a, a story tale. You're actually putting together basic biology with observations and opening up a little bit and allowing these un unheretofore described relationships to make themselves obvious. And with enough hours of observation like Val did, sitting on a hillside or or others have done, you start to see this, and then it's your task as a biologist to describe it in fairly neutral, non um, uh, non subjective terms. Try to be as objective as you can, but there's always that element of subjectivity. But to describe it in ways that others can relate to. And all of a sudden our paradigm of understanding wildlife starts to enrich and develop and shift and and we see these these uh, uh, incremental shifts that happen throughout the, the history of understanding wild animals, and it's really exciting when you see that. And Val was one of those guys.
3: Mm-hmm. I think he was he was less anthropomorphic than many of many other behavioral uh, scientists, and I, I think he was very able or very uh, well able to. Relate behavior to broader ecological constructs and describe those statistically. I, th- I think that was really important as well.
2: That's really a good point, Matt. Because there are some folks like the the De- Desmond Morris and others that took great liberties and deviated from the actual biology, and yet yet others like the Muries and Aldo Leopold, they actually stuck right to the biological science and made these observations and wove this into our our understanding and that stood the test of time
3: and and that that style of biology i find is um you know not as not as well practiced or commonly practiced today and i think you and lee and i you know have been discussing this for quite some time that you know biologists that are coming out of university right now um because of the advantages that we have with respect to technology and communication um, the natural history component, the collections, the uh, behavioral analyses, uh, nomenclature, um, systematics, and anatomy, morphology; those are fast becoming lost sciences because you know you can look them up quite easily. But you know, as as Lee would attest on many of the, you know, graduate level exams, you know, one of the first questions he'll throw out is, you know, kingdom phylum class genus, family genus species for the species that you've been studying for the last three years. Yeah. I think that's important.
1: Mm-hmm. Let, let, me,
2: let me tell you a quick story about a colleague, um, friend, sometimes dance partner that Matt, of Matt's and mine. Dr. Colleen Casti St. Clair is a, is a well accomplished animal behaviorist. She goes to all the meetings. There's an entire society of animal behaviorists that meet up. And about five years ago, she came to hunting as an adult and she started seeing animals in very different ways. And this is a woman that had studied chickadees, penguins, and other things. All of a sudden, she's going toe-to-toe with a little buck-white-tailed deer that's coming into her father's garden plot out in the, at what they call the mosquito farm. And so she it had a wonderful season, didn't fire a shot. The next season, early in the season, this guy walks out, and she actually dropped him right there. Then she had the whole thrill of loading him in the back of her Hyundai, and, and it was It was, she went through the whole, she was prepared, she had the whole ritual, but she started to see wildlife in a different way, in a different, more profound, interactive way. And she served the venison steaks with a lot of pride. Uh, She talked about the emotional rise she got that was beyond what she would normally experience with other wildlife. It was a a more profound experience for her, and it was interesting for a 50-plus-year-old woman to, to see that.
3: Lee, that is, that is really the crux. Of, of hunting uh, in terms of the experiential definitions and I always speak to non hunters in terms of hunting being a direct participatory activity with that is an act of predation within uh, ecological process structure and fun function the consequences of your actions are far greater than you know, being a passive observer of wildlife. And even that, you know, people will be able to argue there's no such thing as, you know, the non-consumptive user, but the gravity of taking an animal's life and then being responsible for treating that animal with respect, honoring it by consuming it, um, that's bound to change human beings and the experience of hunting and not just killing, but hunting. And everything that is around that is bound to change people. So when Colleen said that, you know, it was something I think that rounded out and furthered her knowledge base and her appreciation of animal behavior and probably natural history altogether.
2: And and profoundly, Matt, is that not only did that buck have a relationship with Colleen, hereafter, she's going to be picking up white tails or black tails, standing on the edge of a clear cut or a field. And... Checking out size, whether whether where they're moving, she's become a more attuned observer and appreciator. I mean, I love the idea that we are programmed to look at four-legged, beefy animals of any sort with a, a little bit of saliva on our lip and a, a deep instinctual love of them because they represent resources and meat. I don't know if that's true or not, but no, it's, it's certainly it's truly. I I will drool. I will drool <laughs> <I've> seen- <laughs> over moose. I will drool over what comes out of your smoker, Matt. <laughs> but but there's there's um, a lot of there's a lot of appreciation that comes about thinking of the potential of animals you may never have access to. you see them differently your your worldview of wildlife has changed once you've actually killed one, eaten that one, and uh, talked about it, shared those stories.
1: Yeah, I mean I totally I totally agree with that because you know all my experiences hunting um, you know, Immersing myself into the animal world um, Which is kind of the transition I've made in my life is is I've it's 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 been a feeling I've had my whole life And, and maybe you've experienced this when you're hunting It's like hunting season starts, you know, you're prepared and you go out But there's this period of time where you feel awkward hunting you know you're mm-hmm. you're you're out there. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like, it kind of feels like you're bumbling around. You're everything knows you're there. Like and and then, like you start to get in the game. You, your head starts to get into it. You start to pick up things in the air. Like everything starts to come back, and it's it's almost like a movie where it's like there's this, <laughs> and you step into another world. Yeah, and everything all of a sudden becomes different. This is, I, it's not just me going out hunting, something's happened and and I've gone into this envelope or this bubble, you know, and now mm-hmm. I'm trying to, you know, uh, track track down this animal. And I found that experience. Um, that's ultimately what I'm seeking now when I hunt, it yeah. is, is, is to find that point, that moment, where I now know I'm immersed in the animal's world. I've left this world and I'm in that world. That to me is, you know, what it's all about because that experience in their world and that bubble, that alter parallel universe, whatever you want to call it, is where I learn the most about what those animals need and what they do and how they react to everything that's going on. That is the pieces that come back to me and say, what do I need to do? to protect these species, to be an advocate for habitat, for, for management. What, what did I leave that world with? What knowledge did they even impart on me to say, you need to know this and you need to do something with this knowledge. And, and, um, that's, that's, that whole experience has really changed hunting for me and, uh, it might sound kind of weird Mark, to say, like, no. Mark, did you... you,
3: sorry, go ahead, Lee.
2: I was going to say, what you just described quite eloquently, Mark, was the flow experience that people talk about getting in the zone. And a lot of interesting things happen when you're in that zone. There's something called time compression. I know you've experienced this where you're hunting hard, and all of a sudden you look up, you're starving, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You haven't eaten anything. You wonder where the day went. You probably sleep really well that night. If a psychologist could have instrumented your brain to look at the brain activity, You would have seen a step function, you would have seen a a jump up at that point where you're thinking holistically, you're allowing uh, inputs to go in, you're you're synthetically combining all sorts of inputs, and it's exhausting, because your brain weighs 4% of your body weight, yet it uses 25% of your blood glycogen, and you will flat out exhaust yourself mentally being in that zone, and it feels wonderful. Runners know it as the dopamine hit when they hit you know, get past the wall and others. There are other things like that. But this is this is something that that experience is so precious and it, it does time travel as well because kids can get into that zone in the snap of the fingers. They're playing with the block set or they're building a fort in the backyard. They're completely lost. They don't hear anything, and they're completely into their their game. And we as adults, we have mortgages to pay and insurance and jobs and hours and, and kids at daycare. We don't get but a, a tiny little percentage of our year in that zone. And when you get there and you get a flow experience out in the woods, it's so such precious time, you wanna go back and do it again and again. I hate to call it addictive, but it really is compelling. It, it pulls on you and you miss it when you don't have that. But, and it it's it's healthy, that's the neat thing about it. It's really, you, you emerge wiser. And as you pursue those animals, the interesting thing is you make them wiser too. There was an old saying. It's that it's the lion's claws that make the antelopes' fleet, uh, feet so fleet. You know, we have to keep the pressure on these guys, or they just basically become barnyard goats and sheep. If they don't have the predation, they don't have the push every now and then. And we've all seen park deer and park grouse and things that just ignore people. And it's they aren't really wild animals to me anymore. They're not acting predator prey. They've lost context. So we we impart changes on them they impart changes on us and they give us a great gift and that is Mm -hmm. that gift of these flow experiences
1: I think it was uh, in in um, meditations on hunting Jose Ortega to say Mm
2: -hmm. that,
1: that he said the the instinct to capture and the instinct to evade is the greatest instrument that nature uses to regulate life on the planet and it's that interplay between predator and prey that as he said is the greatest thing that drives evolution and maintains life on the planet so
2: Darwin never sleeps <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it,
3: was, it was all it was also the central theme to Richard Cannell's famous short story the most dangerous game yeah let's um, not go there <laughs> but uh, you know uh, but this is part and part uh, of of why I believe hunting is more... Um, than a sport and perhaps more than what we would define a classical recreational activity. Uh, I think there's consequences to our actions as hunters that are, are very profound. And, uh, I'm, you know, we can fit hunting or, you know, angling or some other activities within the continuum of recreational activities, we can fit it in two definitions around sport, but it's it's a very hard fit because there's elements that fall in and out quite regularly.
2: Yeah. One of our, our Hunting and Angling Network members, Dr. Brian Joubert, it has a really nice little soliloquy about the virtues attached to hunting and how Hunting, and by all rights, should make us better people because it gives us an opportunity to practice our virtuous behavior and practice elements that we all admire as a society. Things like restraint, patience, uh, investment, learning, uh, discretion. It, they, and and I think that um, I think hunting gives us a huge opportunity to select how we behave based on our predefined ethical standards and it makes you think about your standards as well. And a lot Charles, of Charles,
3: Charles List from the uh, State University of New York, and he came out and spoke to our group several years ago, and uh, he wrote a book that was essentially defining environmental virtue, uh, part of hunting and angling. And his was, you know, a three-pronged approach to virtues and one was that hunting and angling will allow you to demonstrate competence and excellence in an activity and it's a series of activities whether it's you know your uh, woodcraft skills your survival skills your tracking skills your observational skills skills to shoot um, skills to to follow up blood trails all of that It requires a great deal of not only experience, but knowledge that's applied. Uh, The second uh, component uh, that was quite virtuous was a broader understanding and awareness of all the factors that would influence hunting um, and the ecological uh, constructs around uh, hunting and, uh, and, and many of the social pressures that would influence its continuance. And the third was actually community involvement and encouraging broader society to uh, not necessarily participate in hunting and angling, but at least show some comprehension and understanding in that. So he linked those activities, especially hunting, as being very much a virtuous activity, one that would enhance one's life.
1: Mm. Now. Do you think, you know, hunt, hunters trying to, and I say try, because you know, like this, this is the social media, you know, way of engaging with the outside world now, um, or the or the non-hunting um, part of society. You know, are are hunters trying to portray or communicate these things, but they're that they're getting twisted. You know, um, on on the hunting community, um, yeah. you know, sport. Um, you know, was was one. Um, I I see more people in the hunting community becoming advocates for for not referring to it as a sport. And uh, I had a conversation with somebody not that long ago that thought that that was fine to call it a sport, and couldn't understand why that was sort of a trigger word in the non-hunting community and. As as I understand it is the, the reference to hunting as a sport was hundreds of years ago when society transitioned from sort of hunting being like the hunter gatherer, you know, communities to agriculture based where hunting became sort of more of a pastime more like something that you that you did as a pursuit not so much like as an absolute necessity and then the consciousness the ethics the management all of that started to flow into it and hunters started to impose rules on themselves you know don't shoot waterfowl in the springtime when they're on the nest you know the fair chase stuff the biological stuff and it's that construct Of the definition of sport meaning rule bound which is why it was called sport hunting because it wasn't pot hunting of just like whatever you can shoot whenever you just put meat on the table for the family there was some rules to hunting and it was called sport hunting but nowadays if if somebody calls it sport hunting people go oh like football and soccer and mixed martial art fighting it's a game you're thinking about it as a competition they're an opponent you need to defeat them and you know there's so much of that i don't know do you do you think that seems to happen like when people are trying to express these virtues that it's just not landing right and getting getting twisted
2: certainly and what what you've described there is is people putting things out in a very presumptuous way they're presuming that others share their value set their experience their knowledge and their willingness to accept the death of an animal people that don't see any rewards from that are pretty quick to to uh, uh, denigrate the whole thing. I talked to a sports psychologist, Dr. John Dunn, a while back, and I asked him, what are the basic essential things to define a sport? And I was thinking along your same lines, Mark. He said that you have to have some chance of having a winner or a loser, and nobody wants to call the wildlife or the hunter the loser. Uh, It has to be considered a, a fair competition, a somewhat balanced competition. And if we're going to be honest, our hunting is really never uh, balanced. Uh, it's That's one of the allures of dangerous game, actually, is that there is some chance, that, like a bullfighter, it, it can get you. But truly, we don't go out rabbit hunting or grouse hunting expecting to be savaged or killed by a grouse. The, the end point of the two, for the animal and for us, is so profoundly different. It's, it's not, it's disingenuous to say it's a fair competition. So I, I can see how it, it loses out the sport aspect in a few ways the other thing you mentioned that i think was pretty fascinating goes right back to my very first thing that i wanted to talk about and that is what your ultimate goals are for going hunting for some of course it's going to be big antlers or bragging rights and others it's going to be meat others it will be the experience others it'll be the community and the sharing there's there's no end to the number of reasons people go out but the sport aspect also provides a few markers that I, you can say I succeeded, I won. We love these metrics of I got my limit I caught my limit of trout or I, I killed a, a, a trophy bull or I you know whatever. And you can see where this this rings hollow to many of the indigenous users that might be seeing this as a survival meat supplementation lifestyle thing and these trappings of hard bits of antler fur tusks, are a bit foreign to them useful items in some ways but not the ultimate goal of the of the case so we're we're talking across purposes quite often um and that can get you in a lot of trouble that can happen in a major way on the internet can happen at a very personal way one-on-one you just have to really get outside of yourself outside of your confirmation bubble and and think how the other person is perceiving this and speak in their
1: terms another another one I'll, I'll see what your thoughts are on this one it one of the things that seems to be getting turned back against hunters is the fact that we're having fun when we're out there and we're expressing joy and emotion and elation you know when we're actually successful when we harvest an animal and there's I mean, there's even been academics that have, you know, tried to turn that against us by studying thousands of photos off the internet and categorizing the type of smile the hunter has with this animal. And through that smile, they can then determine the motives of the hunter, and they determine which percentage of them um, that that smile is saying that they actually um were thrilled and reveled in the fact that they took the animal's life like it was like a like an evil smile or you know or something like that and so the 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 counter to that seems to be that fewer and fewer hunters are kind of like showing the emotional part of the hunt and the fact of like this is fun we're happy i yes i am smiling because i'm you know, here with a moose, or you know, a nice big mallard duck, or whatever, and you see the, the what they call the, you know, the grip and grin photos, where they're very somber and they're they're reflective, and you know, some people criticize it as as being remorseful, you know, type pictures, and and do you think it's okay, like to just? Oh, I I say this is fun like and and it doesn't mean you're a cycle
3: yeah i think it's very important to encourage the fun part of it and it's a very natural outlet for those types of emotions anyone that has ever hunted hunted very hard and uh has gone through you know physical and emotional you know pain and uh walking and hunting and tracking and all and almost being able to harvest a game animal but the animal eludes them and then being able to see the animal you know again having that opportunity is bound to elicit and evoke those emotions and i think that's really healthy and there is a considerable amount of confusion around that thinking you're being smug prideful Mm -hmm. sadistic and and people that don't have the context and understanding of the experience of hunting and uh, reduce it only to killing an animal uh, are 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 mistaken. Um, I'm familiar with the paper that was written um, on that and the the assumptions mm-hmm. that are made. I think are far-reaching and uh, I don't believe that they're relevant to hunting per se. Um,
2: Matt, it, quite it, often those kind of papers have got their answer before they start their research, and yeah. they, they seek out confirmatory <laughs> yeah. uh, data to, to give a little more gravity to an advocacy position that would like to be advanced.
3: It, it actually reminds me a few years ago when the, there was a spear hunter in Alberta that harvested a black bear, it was Josh Bomar, I believe. And, yeah. he, uh, uh, and, and quite honestly, I don't believe it was the act of of uh, using a spear to harvest this bear as much as it was portraying his, uh, you know, uh, the emotional response that he had to that animal. And, uh, you know, jumping up and down, th- that sort of thing. I think that was the part that really turned off a lot of people. And, you know, anyone that's hunted and been in the situation where they've, yeah, bow hunted for example we're dealing with essentially uh, an act of exsanguination the death isn't particularly immediate it takes seconds if not a minute or two and uh, uh, and the animal bleeds out Uh, same with with rifle hunting as well it's it's often lung shots that are putting this animal down it doesn't die absolutely at the same moment But you've done all you can in in order to kill that animal as humanely as possible. And I think that needs to be recognized as that. And we need to balance our emotional response with that of showing some reverence, like in our office at at work. um, I won't allow anyone to put a cap or you know, a funny face or a smile or a mustache, fake mustache on any of the mounts that we have in the office. Christmas because, decorations. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, with it's, yeah. it's oh, no. just not a respect. It's not respectful, you know, and so we, we there is a modicum of, of respect that that we need to show some reverence towards. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't show our emotion, our elation, our joy. And The people that don't understand that are the ones that don't have the context.
2: Let's jump back for a second though. Um, I was stricken by a a Wisconsin study some years back by Dr. Thomas Heberlein who had hunters observe, uh, carry with them a heart monitor and a bottle to collect urine samples from themselves during the hunt when they saw an animal and when they they killed an animal. And within that urine sample, you could actually detect uh, hormones, corticosteroids, that showed your level of metabolic excitement and it turns out there is a deep physiological reaction that happens with us when we just see the animal and a much deeper one when we, we take a shot at it. No surprise to a hunter, but it was tangible evidence that suggests there's uh, uh, something really deep and ex- instinctual going on. And you're dealing with a lot of, of adrenaline and you, it's not terribly unlike a football player in the Super Bowl that spikes the football in the end zone without a sheer elation and release of having scored. And uh, you can be forgiven, I think, for having some out of the ordinary re- responses when you approach a, an animal you, whose life you have just taken. Sometimes there are tears, sometimes there's reflection, sometimes there's elation. But overall, it's a profound and meaningful moment. And in hindsight, it's almost always considered fun. And fun is a very trite way of saying something much deeper. It's a rewarding experience, or it's a fulfilling experience, or it's a it's a with emotionally significant event. There are lots of things that can dent our psyche and get underneath our the shell we maintain on our day-to-day lives in society. And taking an animal's life is one of those things. And you don't wanna, um, if you're really nervous and you're not dealing with it, you're not being honest with yourself, you might beat your chest and, and kick, and say, this this big old son of a gun, I got him at nine o'clock, you know, and puff around. But that's the embarrassment of not being able to look into the eyes of an animal you've just taken. And I would say those hunters are early on in the spectrum and have not dealt with the gravity of their actions, this cause, uh, this causal reaction, and uh, and they need to think a little deeper and need to be brought along a little deeper to think about what they've done. It's not wrong, but to ignore it and deny it, I think, is a missed opportunity for personal growth and for basically understanding yourself better.
1: No, I completely yeah. completely agree. You know, like for me you know when I see the videos or pictures or whatever you know of the hunters like you know what you were talking about you know with the the bear spearing video there Matt um, it for me personally when a hunter makes the shot and then they're instantly like they know they hit the animal then it's like high-five and exciting all this kind of stuff to me to me that feels inappropriate cuz it's like that is still a very very serious time yeah. mm-hmm. like the moment you For pull sure. the trigger and it's like all i can think about is do i got to get ready is it going to get up mm-hmm. where's it going where's the last spot i saw it was it you know was it good i i start thinking through all these things Um, when am I going to go over there? Am I going to give it some time? Um, you know, you're thinking about, and it's like, I want to get there and make sure I can find it and that it's expired or that I can immediately, um, you know, humanely, you know, finish the animal off kind of thing. And, and all of that is still the serious act of hunting until you're there. And then it's like, okay, it's like, that's done. Right? It, it's over, you know, for that, that, that animal. And e- even then I still have a little tough time with just kind of like, you know, hooting and hollering and jumping for joy. Cause it, it seems disrespectful for me to do that standing in the presence of the animal. Um, and then I still put the weight of my responsibility on what I have to do to process, you know, and, and get the animal out and safely and, you know, start thinking through the logistics of that and getting prepared for <laughs> grizzly bear, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, personally, like, you know, it, it's almost like the the elation part, all of that doesn't come together till it's like the last pack is at the truck. And you're like oh that's the big let down and it's like then I can actually sort of be excited and
2: yeah. mark you, mark you're you're you've already just said that your currency of appreciation here is the experience and for many people the, their currency is the video that was being taken of them taking this animal you'll often hear people say did you get that that that's what they're really most concerned about they'll they'll find the animal later i think that's rather superficial that's my opinion but they're not mutually exclusive you can still be a responsible hunter and have the pure adrenaline shakes and a lot of those guys are shaking like a leaf after they've just shot this animal you know you know it's gotten down deep in their brain and their amygdala and they've had the big endorphin release and all that they're getting some currency there
3: but you know yeah no yeah no I, i was just going to say that you know mark when you were describing what happened after the shot and uh it's almost ritualistic, and those sort of rituals have found themselves um, embedded within the hunting traditions and other cultures uh, and other jurisdictions. So, you know, when Lee and I, we went uh, hunting in Poland together a number of years ago. and Matt,
2: we went eating in Poland and we did a little hunting.
3: Yeah, yes, yes, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. Came back with <laughs> a dog. Yeah. Well, I'll t- yeah, well, that was another trip, but... Um, <laughs> My famous food memory of Poland is Lee and I went into this restaurant that specializes in smoked pork hock called Golonka, and the smallest size that they will serve you is one kilo and then it, that's that's like the baby size portion and then it just goes up from there and you have this crispy skin on the outside this rich succulent fat layer underneath that's quite gelatinous and this delicious, smooth, tender meat underneath. And you serve it with pickled mushrooms, rye bread, mustard, horseradish, and a knife. And our
2: vegan friends have just fainted mad.
3: Yeah. And, uh, that was, that was epic, but just getting back to the hunting traditions is, you know, the rule sets, the sport of hunting there, so to speak, uh, were very. Um, tightly managed and uh, when an animal was killed and you couldn't go near the animal until the hunt um, the drive was finished and you knew that the the drive was finished by the sounding of the horn and then you know the game was collected and that was the moment by which you showed your appreciation you honored the animal by giving it the last bite you know taking a branch dipping it in its blood the handshake you know and the and the uh the hazel or the spruce into the cap on the right side of the successful hunter that in itself is i think a, um, a means by which we show reverence to both the animal and to the hunter and uh, you know i like that tradition a lot because mm-hmm you know, it's a bit mystical in in that way. But, you know, whether or not I'm also with Lee, you know, here in in, in Alberta and, you know, we grab each other and give each other a big hug and I lift him up and, you know, pour orange juice on his head, you know, it's
2: all the same. (laughs) Well, you know, Joseph Campbell's in his great series on the power of myth, talks about the the loss in our society of rites of passage and ritual and contemplation that comes with that. And sometimes having a little bit of a structure and framework around processing an animal, these rituals you go through, gives you a way to explicitly address the taking of a life. It's not not necessarily full atonement, or it's not ill, but it's recognizing that this is a trade-off. We've taken a dynamic living animal from a population and converted this into something fully respectable and usable for us. And there's a thank you that's appropriate there. And usually that's either dipping, a, a, as Matt said, dipping a, a evergreen into the blood and, and adorning yourself. Sometimes it's putting a little tiny dab of blood on your face, to so you share the blood with that animal. It's just, there are things like that we we, we need to do more of, I think. Um, in, in ancient cultures, according to Campbell, there were lots of things around the first kill by a young hunter, when a, a young woman got her her menstrual period, there were there a set of rituals there. There are a whole series of things that were done to mark the passage of time, and and they're important. It's quite interesting now that I'm in the phase of life where I'm moving away from hunting a little bit, or I, I'm, I'm still hunting. I'm just not killing as many things deliberately because the experience so greatly overshadows the actual taking of life. I want to get.
1: bitter about the spot prawns. No, yeah, the spot the... are there's a
2: there's a hate on going there. I'm gonna no I'm gonna it's, take it out on them.
3: It's
1: not
2: but,
3: for lack of trying Lee it's, I know. it's the success. It's the yeah. success.
2: But well it's also a rationalization. I probably don't see as well, hear as well, and get around as well as I used to. But I, I do appreciate the animals I take tremendously. And you know, after I, I would be scared to think how many ungulates Matt is killed in the line of work and the line of pleasure likewise here from disease control studies and things but it there's a certain routinization that happens with that and the thrill, it's not like your first date anymore it's more like you're an old married couple that's in, into this routine with the, the animals and, and you're going to be a little more selective and deeper on the appreciation, lower on the body count
3: I, I remember the after 2008 when we stopped the uh, mule deer culls Uh, with respect to CWD in Alberta um, you know I I never wanted to look at another mule deer I never wanted to eat another morsel of mule deer flesh I never wanted to smell another mule deer Uh, the whole experience I got um, ringworm and an aversion to all things mule deer and uh, it wasn't you know we weren't hunting at that point you're essentially culling animals uh, to the point of, you know, exhaustion. And I didn't hunt mule deer for a number of years. And the first time that I did was was in a hunt with Lee, and we reestablished by virtue of tradition and excitement and camaraderie and friendship that hunting experience. And so hunting was restored. And after that, I felt wonderful. And, uh, yeah, that was great.
2: I don't know anybody, Matt, that's ever participated in culling. I've talked to elephant colors I've talked to rabbit colours, deer cullers. Uh, we did episodic hemorrhagic disease calls in Louisiana. It can utterly kill the thrill of hunting. You'd have to be a bloodthirsty devil to keep that up very long. Maybe a flawed sociopath to, to do that for a living. I, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a strange thing. It takes all the fun out of it. I can only imagine an indigenous buffalo jump and the amount of work and how people would just say, never again, (laughs) we we don't want to have another 16,000 pounds of bison to process.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Now, uh, a little while ago, Lee, you you used this term currency. Yeah. And and you seem to express it as like an individual thing, like the currency of, of, of a hunt for like an, an individual. And so explain that a little bit and then talk to a little bit, I'm, I'm looking at one of like the notes in your emails that you said you think the currency for a successful hunt is being revisualized, you're seeing changes. Yeah. yeah. Explain you, that.
2: You know, you know what Mark, you're a really good interviewer. You brought me right <laughs> back to that first point I wanted to speak to in the first place, thank you that I think we need to look inside ourselves and not let, let the outside media tell us what success what constitutes success. What are the metrics? What is the measurement? What is the currency by which you evaluate a successful hunt or a unsuccessful hunt? For many people they, they reduce it down to a simple binary, a black or white. You killed something or you didn't kill something. You killed a hundred and sixty inch white tail or you did you fell below that. You failed. And I think that's a very slippery slope and a dangerous way to think about things because you miss out on the opportunity to appreciate the, the joy of an entire day afield where you're in a flow experience. You come home knowing something with some funny stories uh, about probably drank too much coffee. You feel slightly elated. You sleep well at night and you didn't fire a shot. You might not have seen an animal. You might have photographed the best sunrise you ever saw. There are many, many ways to win and very few ways to lose on a hunt if you'll set it up in advance to not be a winner-take-all sort of uh, operation. So the currency, what I'm asking of my colleagues and anybody listening, I'm asking you to find the wins, find the appreciation, maximize the payback that nature is giving you while you're out there in the process of hunting, and don't, don't hold it down to just, I got an animal or I didn't that's not the way you measure a hunt in my opinion others might differ
1: now see see if see what you think about this idea i i feel in recent decades that the domination of the hunting community by the hunting industry meaning the companies and the manufacturers of stuff that support what we do in search of this personal currency have taken it upon themselves to craft the narrative through picture through film through celebrities sponsored hunters whatever logos and all this kind of stuff is they're out there defining the currency for hunting And that becomes the currency that hunters feel that they're pursuing. And more often than not, the currency somehow involves doing something with their products or upgrading their products or getting the next year product or or, or something. It seems seems to be the currency is very product-based, very market-based. And I'm critical of the hunting industry that way, and it's sponsored like, social media celebrities and all that, and I'm kind of like, back off. Just show us the stuff, but don't attach the narrative to it. Let us define what that currency is of haunting. Listen very
2: carefully to this, Mark. I don't know if you can hear this or not. Hear that? Can you hear that little noise? (laughs) That's the noise of a credit card being scraped across my arm. One of the goals of, of any good marketing executive is to pull as much money out of your wallet, out of your credit card online as they can or in the store. They have a different goal and you need to have some resistance to that because there's always going to be the elation of newness and we live in a world of commodification. In fact, my wife is an environmental sociologist. She refers to the Cabela's as temples of consumption and they really are. They're, they're church-like when you walk in there. The heads are there, the, the
3: salesmen the, are there.
2: Yes.
0: Yes,
3: stop, stop. Just no, for a moment. just for a moment. Let me interject. Matt loves Cabela's. Let me interject. First of all, yeah. you're speaking to Lee. Lee's idea of outdoor gear is what
2: <laughs> Grandpappy. Oh,
3: oh no. What Grandpappy Foot gave gave him back in Alexandria, Louisiana. Yeah, it's mismatched wool. Yeah, I was so thoroughly embarrassed for him when we were hunting (laughs) pheasants in Montana because we're supposed to wear blaze orange and Lee somehow found like a plastic bag that was (laughs) woven into a piece of vinyl and it just looked awful because Lee wouldn't part with 11 dollars so We went into the local store, and I said, that's it, Lee. I can't stand looking at you. You're getting this. So there's a difference between Lee, the absolute Luddite, or Lee in the field, good rifles, but look at his ammunition belt. There's one round with a red tip, another round with a green tip, another round that is a solid copper tip, another with a soft point. Ask Lee.
2: that, that has the, that if you shoot it under a hundred yards, you're fine with that.
3: Oh, oh, shall I talk about the antelope last year, Lee? Let's not.
1: <laughs> so,
3: so what you ask Lee, he'll go, he'll dismiss it, of course, in his charming, effusive way. And he'll say, this one's for slowing him down a bit. This one's for putting him on his back. And this one's making him into venison. So... Lee is is very much anti-materialist. I gave Lee a knife once, and it had the name of a hunting celebrity embroidered on it. First thing Lee did, hack that. Use the knife blade itself <laughs> and, and hack the stitching out of the cover.
2: Well, what so. you what you described there is the same thing Mark was saying it was it was a, an unease with with the commercialization of hunting. You're taking something sacred and making it into a commodified system. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we're vul- all vulnerable to that. Yeah. I look at some of that stuff and I do upgrade occasionally. I try to buy on function. In fact, this is one of the reasons that I was thought that the hipster hunter might be a real step in the right direction. The reuse of wool, the the, the uh, recycling of stuff. I think that's the way, I don't know. I, I just, I think there are a lot of people that overgear and under hunt.
3: Yeah. It, but there's, there's even a contradiction in the so-called hipster hunter you know, um, typology because you're talking about $250, you know, Pendleton plaid shirts and, you know, $600 adventure sworn knives made in upstate New York. And, you know, these certainly are appreciated for this, you know, neo craftsman movement, uh, but not necessary to hunting um, in a whole. I, I don't like the over-commercialization of hunting i don't like the fact that uh, that industry sponsors every single hunting per i understand why but it commodifies it to the point where you know you can't see someone you know being able to show you the ins and outs of you know uh, hunting elk during the rut without flogging a product and that i, I believe debases the spirit and intent of hunting
2: The the, the restraint on that is going to come from the hunting side, though. You you really can't ask the the marketing world to do anything else. That's what they do, and they do it well, and we have to figure out how to dip in and out of that responsibly. So, I mean, it's like the old Aesop's fable of the farmer that picked up a snake, warmed him up, took him home, gave him some milk, and then the snake turned around and bit him. He said, why did you do that? And the snake said, well, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. it's sort of like that. You can't ask to ask a, a marketing firm to do anything other than sell product is like asking a pig to knit a blanket. It's just not going to happen. So I don't. I don't really ask them. I don't. I don't even criticize them for doing that. But I do criticize people for not using restraint and insight and knowledge, product knowledge, as they equip themselves.
3: Mm-hmm. You can't. Yeah. You can't replace um, skill and competence by buying it
1: yeah but they would make you believe that you that you they they can the industry can right like the latest of this and the best of that the newest Mm -hmm. of this and you know and because like here's the proof here's this guy he's got like a big white tail buck from last year and he used yeah you know these color veins on his arrows so everybody rushes out and you know, and and that that's kind of why I brought this up. You know, that that notion of the currency is this personal thing of hunting, that you're, you know, that you're that you're getting out of hunting, um, and to me it feels like so many people are just simply their currency is what they're told the currency is and it's something that actually mm-hmm. is tangible that they put out cash for and then they they that gets reaffirmed, you know, you know, basically until the new pattern comes out next year and you know and then and then they they, they force you to to pursue the new the new currency. So well,
2: let's talk about a fix to that problem. And I think one of the fixes is for where people get their information. It shouldn't necessarily be from the hunting store. People in that position have a built-in conflict of interest. They should get it from respected colleagues and other hunters hunters and mentors and training and things like that. It, and that's why we as hunters got to reach out a little more. We, we should set a goal, I think, in my opinion, we should set a goal of bringing one new hunter into the, the fold each year. I had a 17-year run with at least one hunter coming in every year that I mentored, took them under my wing, took them on their first hunt. Now I've slipped out here in BC because I don't COVID and I don't know many people, but it, it's it's a it's a goal I think we should all set. And you teach them well, teach them right, show them the excitement, the upside, the downside, the inside, the honest, unvarnished what hunting is about, and infect them with the excitement and the joy. And some will reject it and not do it, but some will pick it up and carry it on as a lifelong adult. What do they call adult onset hunting? Uh, the excitement of that. Well, well
1: it's very infectious I want to I want to shift gears here a little bit and um, jump into a, a little different topic that's some some points that you uh, emailed Lee and it's kind of a little bit more like we're getting into wildlife management biology sort of stuff and so you raised some questions around maximum rate of harvest um the concept of carrying capacity stockpiling wildlife some of those concepts i was also thinking about this notion out there of um surplus you know the surplus that's what the hunters are 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 taking is the surplus um so so yeah a little shift in gears but um i want you guys to 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 break those down Matt Liz yeah. eats
2: and breathes that. I'm not going to touch that. Matt, you take it.
3: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And and, and building on what you just described, Mark, um, there's also, you know, the concept of population targets. And we traditionally, you know, manage to what the surplus would be. And the surplus would define the harvest. And our goal every year would be to allocate at maximum sustained yield and we did so with the objective of providing as much utility from a population of ungulates as possible or other game species that being said we also uh, managed to a particular population target so I I remember in 1997 Alberta's whitetail population was about 150,000 and the provincial target was 170,000. But due to factors that were beyond any human control, likely around climate and a series of very mild winters. In 2007, 10 years afterwards, the provincial population of whitetails was 270,000. So almost an order of magnitude bigger than what the population goal was. So you know the baseline around managing to a population target shifted, so were we seeing a lot more complaints from the public around an overabundance of deer? Yeah, especially around some rural municipalities where there was ingress of deer into those communities, uh, depredation level events around you know farms and 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 feedlots and so forth. That was that was not good, but for many hunters experienced that or took up hunting during that was the good old days Mm. Uh, as opposed to the late 80s where you were hard-pressed to find a white tail you know occurring at any sort of density so the metrics around harvest around defining surplus defining a population target has almost been reduced to what we would call a happiness quotient so from last year to this year Are you noticing fewer the same or more mule deer bucks? Were you happy with your hunting experience? Uh, what would you like to change? Would you like to see more older deer, or would you like to see just more deer and have more opportunity to hunt and harvest these animals In WMUs where we have limited entry and a draw system based on priority points, We can offer more hunting opportunity, but that means that we may sacrifice trophy quality or quality of size um, of, of the antlered bucks over time. So you tell us public what the objective is because as a biologist, our goal is relatively simple and that's to maintain sustainable, healthy population of species X on the landscape and the habitat upon which it depends for the use and enjoyment of all albertans and the ecosystems that they fill and, and and so forth so that's a pretty easy concept so if we have more than a thousand white-tailed deer in the province we're avoiding the species at risk legislation and then afterwards it's a reaction to or the proactive management towards a goal and the goals don't have to be complex at all and when we say surplus. So if we say surplus saying, well, were you happy with the hunting opportunity success, and the amount of animals that you saw in a day? Um, Yeah, we were really happy. Okay, so we gauge what population level and what structural components that population was based on. And we defined it as such. But there's confounding variables. And this is where wildlife management and game species management becomes quite complex. We also hear from rural municipalities that the vehicle collision date, uh, um, rate is much higher. Uh, we also hear from landowners saying that there's deer eating their haystacks and you know falling dead because they're uh, uh, eating food that their digestive system just isn't used to in their in their uh, feedlots. And uh, we we also have the. Um, prevalence of chronic wasting disease, which will influence what we would declare to be uh, a surplus or not. So it's not really a surplus per se, as much as it is uh, a quota that is defined via allocation, which is linked to a particular wildlife management objective. You know That's
2: really interesting. You talk about the current, the happiness quotient, that ties very much back into Mark Anielski's book, The Economics of Happiness. It's, it's human satisfaction is what we're, you're managing for. And there are many points along that, that population dynamic curve that you can achieve that. But you need to know what the hunting public wants. And there's, you know, I grew up in the Deep South, and Texas was next door, the home of big horn ranches and intensive trophy management. And the brothers, Owl brothers, doing the helicopter surveys and the severe doe culls and stuff to maintain these giant uh, whitetail bucks. It, they, they basically sold for a lot of money. It was a, it's a rather odd way to push the system to an end point to get a desired goal of trophy whitetail. It, up here, we just don't do it to that intensity. We, our, our big bucks wander out as a sheer law of big numbers. There's just enough of them around. We don't have to do that. But, Matt, do you get any pressure in the more civilized zones to do in, intensive trophy management? And what, what are the pros and cons of that? And who's for it? And who's against it?
3: Well, there's there's a component there. There's a component of the hunting public that wants us to manage for older age classes, maintaining older age classes and uh, a disproportionate representation in terms of structure within a population that has larger deer in it, and they're willing to sacrifice regular hunting opportunity and be able to be drawn every four to five years or, or longer in order to have that type of experience. Uh, I would not say it's the majority of Albertans, but what I suspect is happening is that there's confounding variables around chronic wasting disease. And in some zones, and I'm I'm only talking about mule deer right now, in some zones in southeastern Alberta where uh, the prevalence of CWD in bucks is 50 percent plus so there's basically a 50 50 chance that the buck that you kill has cwd and it takes you know anywhere from three weeks to four months to get your cwd results back and this buck is sitting in your freezer processed and uh, interacting with everything else you have in that freezer so you know will that influence your choice over what sort of buck that you want to kill and eat, Uh, will you just take a meat buck or do you wanna kill a larger buck? I don't know if that's significant or not and that's a testable hypothesis. Uh, That being said, we also get a fair amount of concern that's expressed by guide outfitters uh, that want to provide what they would call a marketable product to their clients uh, and they would want to have that, that trophy quality. There's, there's others that just want the opportunity to be able to go and fill their freezer. Uh, and there's others that are a hybrid of that, that they will go with all the best intentions of killing the biggest deer that they could find. And as their time runs out, as the season sort of starts to eclipse, then they will default along continuum to something that is the biggest next deer that they find. So, you know, that, that is certainly out there. Uh, And before we always like we see the literature from other jurisdictions and they talk about carrying capacity and I just want to briefly come back to that carrying capacity in Alberta certainly isn't as big a factor, uh, not on a regional basis as it would be in somewhere like New York, um, because of the proliferation of agriculture, cereal crops haze and the way that we've altered and produced these um, forms of caloric value on the landscape, we've increased the potential uh, and vastly, you know, increase what we would call carrying capacity. um, And this is ecological carrying capacity, well beyond what we wouldn't regularly see in naturally occurring deer densities and populations in Alberta. And the primary limiting factor, of course, would be winter severity when we don't have the same sort of severe winters that we did in the past, the carrying capacity was nothing more than, you know, an elevated artificial metric and our deer populations responded as such. And that's where all the other factors that confound um, a particular objective set in. So there's a social carrying capacity the people in various municipalities don't want to have deer in their gardens and clogging the roads, and people hitting them with their vehicles and, and, and a variety of other depredation type activities. Uh, and with an abundance of prey and ungulates, you get a corresponding by, you know, increase by virtue of standard Lotka-Volterra dynamics in terms of predators. So, we have more grizzly bears, we have more cats, we have more wolves, and all the issues that that brings as well. so
2: Matt, can I get can we get yeah. a course course credit for population dynamics 101 from your your, yeah, your yeah. disposition no, sorry,
1: here? sorry, it's just uh, that was no, good no, it, yeah. no, it, no it, it is really good and and now, where I'd like you guys to go with this is is uh, I want to toss these out there so i I see this a lot where hunters are, are getting involved in understanding these types of things in wildlife management, carrying capacity, the concepts of surplus, harvesting rate, um, you know, all, all these sorts of things. And that is becoming the narrative for a lot of the hunting community, or some of it, to justify hunting to the non-hunting community. Hunting is a tool like for wildlife management. And so it, it almost seems like the argument is becoming the currency is, is like hunters are just saying, oh, I'm being called to duty here. Yes, I'm gonna go out and harvest three deer because the wildlife managers need it. Are, are the wildlife managers managing to provide this for hunters or hunters being the management tool and, and is that the right narrative and the third part of that that I'll throw out is, where does the rest of society fit in, in in their say here?
2: You know, I know Matt's gonna have a lot to add to this, but I would like to just toss out that if we were to snap our fingers and stop all hunting right now, there'd be some upheavals, some population explosions, and they would taper off into a cyclical dynamic, all all animals. It, it's unlikely anything would go extinct. There'd be problems here and there. It's a pretty managed system at this point. Um, the idea that we have to kill them or they'll overpopulate and die of star- starvation, you know what? They, they die of starvation even in our big harvest years. You get a deep snow year in the hills, the animals get trapped, the predators thrive. There is no balance of nature. this It's, it's more like a whack-a-mole or a popcorn popper. Things are going with erratic notion. And within that, we can conservatively take some off without driving the population to a critical low or ex- local extirpation. That's our role and that's the art and science of being a wildlife manager, is figuring out where that is. And it's, it's not a simple cut and dry sort of thing. You're managing multiple variables. Not to get all, all into the deep math of it or anything, but you ultimately, if you back off a notch and think about what will be most satisfying and sustainable For the the human population and compatible with the wildlife population, there are multiple sweet spots in there. Yeah, I think a lot of hunters try to justify their actions in the way that they think will be best perceived by the the anti-public or the non-hunting public. We've seen a whole lot of folks that have said, yeah, we've got to hunt them, they'll be overpopulated. And we also see a whole lot of folks saying, it's for the food. Knowing that nobody argues against organic free range food, well, very few anyway, but really, are they being completely honest? That is an element, but it's not the only one. This circles back to our discussion about fun, about rewarding, about meaningful, about a worthwhile endeavor. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's part of the story. It's not the whole story. And if you, it's disingenuous to hide behind simplistic platitudes to the public to get them off your back.
3: Mm -hmm. Lee, Lee is absolutely right. We do use hunting as a tool in wildlife management, but we're also very realistic about what it can and cannot accomplish. If we want to modify the structure of a particular population on a regional basis or wildlife management unit basis, we can do so by the judicious application of hunting effort and harvest. Uh, if you're looking at large-scale changes with respect to managing carrying capacity and preventing, you know, thousands of starving deer, you know, falling dead on the landscape, that's not something that hunting can really do. Uh, severe winters in Alberta will do that. We have 110 to 115,000 resident hunters in Alberta in any given year, and uh, in order for us uh, collectively as a population Uh, acting together to influence the provincial population of a particular species, it requires a considerable amount of effort that is coordinated. So we would say, yeah, hunting can act to influence such as chronic wasting disease. If we target harvest in particular nodes of high high disease prevalence or areas of geographic interest where CWD Tends to occur, such as river valley corridor areas, and we target harvest in those areas by using hunters. There is a measure of success. There's a paper that's just going to be published in the Journal of Wildlife Management um, quite shortly, outlining that approach. But when we say, or we, we use the platitude, well, we've got to hunt them; otherwise, they're just going to starve to death. Yeah, you know, just it's just nonsensical.
2: To make this a little more West Coast centric, though, I did a little reading trying to figure out how many blacktails are taken along uh, of the in, in the mountains of, of BC. Uh, it was twenty-seven thousand uh, mature bucks, was the number I came up with. Is that is that realistic? Is that possible?
1: If it includes the mainland and the island, possibly. I know the data I have seen. Which I can, I know the person I can get you in touch with to get this. Um, on Vancouver Island, in the last ten to twenty years, the black-tailed deer harvest has fallen from fourteen thousand to less than four thousand.
2: So That's I suspect more are killed more on. are killed by cars than are killed by hunters at this point. I would I would guess.
1: Um, yes, and the loss of old growth on the coast is, yeah. is hugely significant to black-tailed deer. So you know, it's probably just, they're not there.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> they, do you understand, do you know anything about hunter effort, Mark? Is, is that fairly stable or climbing?
1: Um, I don't know exactly for blacktails. Um, the, the databases for British Columbia are freely accessible. You can go in and look at, you know, a okay. number of days, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, uh, I don't know what they are offhand. So yeah,
2: well, yeah, the, the, it's 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 a pretty light little harvest out there. That's that's not a lot of animals being taken in in BC.
1: Yeah, I mean if you're just talking about blacktails, you know on on the coast, um, I think, you know it's that's a hard place to hunt yeah. you know, deer yeah. and steep coastal you know forests and stuff, and even the the cut blocks, you know on the coast as you can appreciate quickly become a gnarled up jungle like way Uh more fast than in the interior and harder to hunt so
2: yeah the the the, i've been stricken as a set of new eyes hitting your wonderful habitat here i've been stricken with what the access roads and the and the cut blocked roads the place you can get you can get almost anywhere in this province if you're willing to walk or have the right kind of mobility
1: yeah it's it's access and road density is is a pretty big conservation concern yeah, you know, across the whole entire province, the south, the north, everything, you know, in this in the southern half, it's forestry, in the northern half, it's oil and gas development, and
2: it's true in Alberta, a pretty,
1: yeah. pretty major cumulative impact here for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's true in Alberta too. One of the reasons I was kind of wanting to know what you guys sort of you know thought about, you know, hunters talking about or justifying hunting, you know, by these. Management terms, rather than these these you know personal currencies that we we're talking about earlier, is is um, you know because that's something that I saw during 2016 during you know the lead up to the ban of the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia, and it was like it, you know it was this high-profile animal and a tremendous amount of arguments over it, but everything that I heard from the hunting community was well we need to control the population and it's like well the harvest regimes were actually designed so hunting didn't influence yeah. the population well the big adult boars they kill cubs and it's like yeah they do they that's their thing that's that's you know evolution and all, adaptate all that stuff taking place it's part of their world yeah. Um, well, then you know if you if you don't hunt them, then they become bold, and and more people are going to get killed. And it's like, well, there's no real body of science that says if you shoot a grizzly bear, that somehow deters another one from mauling a human. And it was it was all these things, you know, the bears exceed their carrying capacity, all these sorts of things. And and it was very interesting that it, mm-hmm. you know, hunters were trying to defend that hunt mm-hmm. um, via these things like surplus carrying capacity, yeah. science regulated but nobody would just say because it's fun to hunt a grizzly bear some people ate them, some people didn't but there's all these things that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast figuring them out, the challenges the, um, you know, getting inside the animal's head, you know, the reward the tradition, all these things nobody would speak that way about hunting that particular animal and uh, I, I, I just found it very interesting and I don't know if that seems to be like the default to defend, or if that's kind of become the pattern of hunters trying to, you know, say, well, it's science based, and we're just we're doing our duty. And
2: <laughs> well, I think they're grabbing straws. We I will talk about we we are grabbing straws to try to find a suitable argument to maintain something we believe in and feel passionately about, and it's, it's both sides do this. The pro and the and the anti hunt. Uh, issue you do this, but they really need to look inside themselves and inspect what what's honest. They need to, to come to this thing honestly, and um, and we don't always do that. Uh, we need wow. to be a little more sincere. And people will accept a lot more, I think, if you're speaking from the heart and you're sincere, and you say this is something I want to do. It's meaningful to me. It's justified within the science as we know it from a population perspective. There's no overarching harm done. And then there's the question of whether a hunted population is valued more by society than an unhunted population. Viewing, I know there are some great bear viewing areas that are the dollars per grizzly because they see them over and over are very high, but that's a very specialized little pocket. Across the province, grizzly bears, elk, deer, they, they gain value by having a slight offtake and being of an instrumental utilitarian value as well as aesthetic, as well as ecological, as as well as, as viewing, as you know, as well as iconic, as well as religious. They they don't have to play just one role. And the roles are not mutually exclusive. You can have a very limited harvest and still have all those other values in abundance.
1: Yeah.
3: i I'd be less concerned about you know the the aspects around hunting grizzly bears. um, And because I think there's all sorts of ways that we can uh, use to either justify or dismiss that activity. Um, But the patterns that I see emerging every year uh, in Alberta is the frequency in terms of wildlife human conflict uh, is, is on the rise and our population is increasing human population is increasing habitats not getting any bigger Um, development into the backcountry and recreational use of the backcountry is also increasing and the frequency by which we encounter wildlife is consequently increasing and the more frequently we engage with wildlife um, we would reasonably be able to assume that Uh, the probability of having a negative encounter may increase. This year we had a very unfortunate year in terms of having two grizzly bear caused Mm. mortality events in Alberta. And uh, they were quite um, concerning because the fatalities occurred within 35 kilometers of each other. Uh, Yet there was two separate bears involved in those uh, events. And uh, immediately after hearing about that, the broader public will say, well, there's way too many bears or there's way, you know, um, too many chances that people are taking when they're out there and, and, and we have to manage the bears. And that potentially could be uh, a means by which we would do this, but it, more importantly, we have to manage ourselves We have to manage our activities in the landscape and be quite cognizant. And in the Manfredo study that I believe was 2014, 26, I forgot when it was completed. There's this aspect of mutualism between people and wildlife and the broadest component of uh, people identified as being mutualistic in terms of their their relationship to wildlife and seeing wildlife as an extension of their social network, rather than purely, you know, uh, domination or utilitarian oriented, or the other means being completely um, preservation minded. So it you know, if that's the case, then I would focus on trying to manage and prevent uh, human wildlife conflict. If um, the managed uh, population of grizzly bears was such that a component was harvested then it would have to be aligned with a particular objective whether that objective is realistic
1: or not is is another matter. Mm -hmm. That really seems to be a topic that kind of might be able to boil down into f- sort of a philosophy of rights to the land, right? Yeah. You know, it, are, are are the wildlife, do their rights supersede people? And if people are going into an area and using it a lot um, and there is conflict, you know, I, I think there's a, a philosophy that it's like, well, the people are the problem. The people are the ones that you know, have to accept the consequences. The wildlife shouldn't, um, you know, the the, the the animals take precedence over the people. Yeah. And then I think there's another philosophy. And this isn't even hunting related. This is just sort of like using the backcountry. Um, there might be another or, philosophy that it's sort of like, well, I'm, I'm entitled to be back there too. And yeah. I shouldn't have to worry about something that might,
3: Harm. I, I think that one of the most important um, things that human beings uh, in, in uh, modern society need to be cognizant of is what is our relationship with nature and how do we value nature and we often one of the most common um, types of arguments that I receive with respect to wildlife is the infallibility of primacy. They were here first, so we're intruding upon their territory. And, you know, there's wildlife will, and and ecosystems change all the time, and habitats get occupied and retaken and occupied by something else over and over again. You know, ecosystems change. Ecosystems appear stable only because biologists die, but they change and they change rapidly. So. We have to come to terms with this philosophy and this ideology about human beings being separate from nature as rather than being components with natural systems that have influences thereof and that's something that i i think is critical know why you hunt no are you able to rationalize your place in nature or separate from nature and how do you value All the components within nature wildlife, fish, insects, trees, disease, oxygen, water, dirt, you name it. And we don't like to
2: add add a little story here, a very short one. Uh, There's a fellow named Dr. Holmes Ralston III. He's considered the father of environmental ethics. He's written a series of books. This fellow has got a PhD in physics, a PhD in divinity, and a PhD in philosophy. So three PhDs. He's well schooled fellow. Well, I had I had a chance to spend a day with him out in the coastal marsh, and we were talking about value, and he made a very astute observation. He said value is a human construct, and remember, without a valuer, there can be no value. and And what he's saying is that without humans there to say something is valuable, it. It doesn't have value unless you ascribe to intrinsic value, which we can't really measure very well. And that is the case where if humans were disappeared from the earth, the earth and everything on it would still have value. You just wouldn't have anyone to tell about that value. It's sort of a hard concept in some ways. He has an essay called The Tiger on the Moon. The Tiger on the Moon doesn't isn't a tiger because it's out of context. It doesn't chase sambar deer. It doesn't mark its territory. It doesn't cast fear in the langur monkeys society it's no longer it's tigerness is reduced grizzly bears suffer from the same thing when they're in the middle of vamp hot springs uh, they are really not acting as grizzly bear they're off their turf they're an anomalous entity in there and they're getting ready to get darted or are caught and hauled away as we change the landscape we change their native old-growth forests in BC to much more of a moonscape and they become grizzly bears out of context on the moon if you will and so an encounter with one of those bears in the wide open, he's hungry, he can't find the ford because everything's been glyphosated in the cut block. Uh, there's a lot of visibility, and he's far from escape cover. Your encounter relationship could be very, very different. Maybe somebody's fed him, you know? Maybe he's been harassed by increasing wolf populations. You just don't know. So I, I always like to sort of bring this back to how we assign value to something and how we extract value and build value in society. Uh, for these things, and that old saying that, and if you know something, you you have to know something to love it. You have to love something in order to protect it. I think that's Richard Louv's comment. And once people are familiar with and they actually appreciate this wildlife, then they're motivated to go forward and protect it. Heretofore, that's largely been the hunting community because we saw a very explicit value of experience, or of meat, or of conversation of community, all these things that we value from a hunt, it was very real to us. It was nebulous, fragmented. It was sort of out there with the public, the non-hunting public. They got it through icons. They got it through t-shirt emblems. They got it through signs. They got it at the grizzly pub. They got it in tattoos, but they didn't get it as this interactive with the real thing. Their relationship was much more vicarious. And introducing these folks to a real contact experience, and it doesn't have to be hunting. It has to be in proximity, watching, studying, and maybe interacting a little bit, whether that means getting, away, getting out of the way of or getting within viewing distance. Those are thrilling things that increase the commitment to conservation. Now, one of the points I guess I should make real quickly, Matt mentioned earlier the difference, the, the preservation aspect. As a society, almost everybody that's not schooled in this will confuse conservation with preservation. And they really are not the same thing. Preservation has its place, preserving values untouched and removing humans from the scene, keeping something locked into place in its era that it existed in and not letting the current changes influence it. Conservation comes from the originally from the word conserving water, holding it back behind dams for human use later in the season to irrigate crops. And so we conserve fruit by preserving it we conserve water you know and so these these things conservation is a use concept we we do this for human use and that ties us right back to holmes Rawson's idea that for it to have value it has to have a valuer it plays out on our sense of values this sounds very anthropocentric i know and it's not meant to be that way but in the way of the world the way things work whether it's from marketing governance or democracy Unfortunately, it's human values that seem to drive the system. Matt's alluded to that with how they set quotas for for harvest. You know, we we look at policy. We look at reactions. It's not based on just biology. It's not just based on dollars. It's based on human satisfactions.
1: So do you guys think that these values, like the value that people place on wildlife, is is shifting – has shifted shifting dramatically and is is that part of what's causing this uncomfortable position to be a hunter in north america right now is is non-stop
2: change
3: yeah yeah uh, uh, certainly we see through you know manfredo's work and the relevancy roadmap that was developed with uh, the association of fish and wildlife agencies that uh, people's Uh, ideals and values with respect to how they live with or use or appreciate wildlife has certainly changed and I I believe that there's a number of factors that have influenced that Uh, I know in the popular media the social media um, the proliferation of various people that find themselves in backcountry settings um, you know uh, utilizing landscapes, um, utilizing tools, the bushcraft movement, the local, you know, food movement, um, you know, uh, rendering bear fat and using that as shortening in your pies to, you know, all sorts of neat, you know, ways that we can interact with wildlife. And, you know, when you see television programs like Alone, it celebrates people's relationships by being in and recreating and living with and and having a sporting aspect around nature. And I believe that it is more than just a utilitarian uh, change, it is a change in the type of utility that's also bound with an ethic of conservation. And I think that is a very positive step. And I'm only saying this because two things. One, I like to remain optimistic and hopeful. And and the second thing is, uh, I would like to see it move in that way. So I, I I do have a lot of hope that we will continue to be quite progressive. The other thing that I'm seeing is a lot of the advocacy groups and the stakeholder groups are beginning to change. And it's not just the random hook and bullet clubs that you would see in local municipalities that would advocate for this or that. Um, we see a lot of specialized groups that are now, and even you know, our largest conservation organization in Alberta, the Alberta Fish and Game Association, is much more broadly beginning to encompass issues around habitat, the development of habitat, um, fisheries values, riparian values, water quality, and uh, beginning to make some moves that are quite progressive in nature, that to me is a sign by which people are showing more of an interest in broadening our understanding and viewing, or thinking about what our relationship is to our natural world beyond beyond that of of st- hacking and stacking, you know, critters. <laughs> and, I've got
2: a uh, way in here, Mark. Yeah. It, i think i think matt spot on you you mentioned a rapid shift and i think it is there has there have been shifts but there have always been shifts it, you alluded to the market hunting era you could go back to the bison and beaver over harvest and pigeon passenger pigeon era yeah. there was a market era there was a sport hunting era there was a conservation era that started there was the period of game management of the aldo leopold era there was ecosystem management from Ward thomas's era And now we're into something, maybe it's holistic management, but there are always shifts, and we have to keep shifting. We don't want to stagnate. At one time, Pennsylvania Fish and Game had the best wildlife officers and conservation officers in the nation. That was in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. They also had deer overpopulations and black bear overpopulations. And everybody looked up to them for leadership. They stagnated, and now they're in the bottom 25% because they're still managing like it was 1950. They haven't kept up with the times. So We have to keep pushing, and that means R and D. That means new thought. That means it means research. It means it means also paying attention to what people want, what they can tolerate, what, and educating the public so they understand these concepts of sustainability, offtake, uh, natural die-offs, uh, response to habitat, all these things. So there's an education component, and and we need to listen. It's not a one-way pipeline of us, you know, trust us, we know more than you, we're wildlife biologists, listen to us. It doesn't go that way anymore. It did for many years because wildlife biology was patterned on military and, and enforcement. But nowadays, it's a reciprocal agreement with the public that we listen as much as we talk, and we respond, and we try to meet those needs and values in, in, in ways that we really never have before. And it's hard. The old guard is having a hard time coming up to this because they feel that they've lost some of their authority. The truth is, it's very empowering. I'm going to pause because I see Matt digging his toes in. No,
1: no. <laughs> I,
3: I, I agree with you, Lee. I think it's a, yeah. a, an astute observation.
2: Yeah, but it's always been changing. and It feels like we're at the edge of the cliff all the time, but it's, it's always been new paradigms replacing the old ones. And thank God it is. It's dynamic and responsive. Yeah,
3: I, I like the new paradigms.
1: Yeah. So, the 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 uncomfortable part of the shift in the new paradigms you know to be speaking for like you know the hunting community is the paradigm shift that seems to be happening is people don't agree with hunting they they don't place their value um on wildlife a part of it being harvesting and the consumption or or gaining some currency from an experience you know involved in hunting that stuff you know is is being dismissed it's being discounted um it's being criticized it's being ridiculed it's being shut down it's being shunned hunters are being marginalized um you know is is that um overreacting <laughs> you know to more people expressing interest in wildlife and conservation or or is that like a you know a real thing that we should be concerned about because to me it seems like it's a real thing we should be concerned about because it
2: yeah it's not new though mark you know this has been around the anti-hunting movement has been around since 1960s and you know actually well before that but we do live in a in a Entitle anyway, a democracy. And if it turns out there's only 2% of the population that wants to hunt, we will probably go the way of, of many European countries and Australia and New Zealand and, and between firearm restrictions and lack of access to shooting sports, uh, we will see a diminution of hunting. That strikes fear in the heart of people that have, for which hunting is a part of our personal life identity. That, that makes me sort of nervous inside to even say those words. But truly, if I'm that deep a minority, then I have to conform somewhat to the majority, the vast majority. And that to me is the exhortation for us to increase the understanding and the ranks of hunters so we have more voting hunters on the landscape. And it might mean a little bit of crowding. Maybe we have to share a a salmon stream or share a a cut block or or share a duck marsh, but that's a small price to pay to keep this a vital, vibrant uh, activity that we can partake in so right. I, I'm all about it. you know there are some people say yeah great hunter numbers are falling more for me that's a very short-sighted and selfish way to see things it scares the tar out of me when I see us drop from 70,000 waterfowlers down to the 20,000 in Alberta I think we're one step away from being an endangered species ourselves uh,
1: and well, I think and, it was Shane Mahoney said uh, um, you know when we become too few we become irrelevant so yeah. that that kind of speaks yeah. to that well we yes we we see
3: trends and we interpret statistical trends uh, in all sorts of ways and as soon as we you know start to see rapid declines in hunting we're quick to jump to all sorts of conclusions and uh, quite often i hear well we're just hunting isn't relevant anymore and you know, the anti-hunting movement is gaining traction and teeth and it's becoming far more prevalent and we're hearing about it on social media and a variety of other things and, uh, and then COVID hit and all of a sudden our hunting participation rate went up by 25%, you know, and
1: where, yeah,
3: yeah, as did fishing in Alberta as well. So you know, where did our ideologies go during a time that we were sequestered at home? Uh, uh, Obviously they were punted out the window when we thought, well, I can uh, enact my social distancing while I'm out there hunting a whitetail. So, you know, I think there's more at play than uh, a directed anti-hunting sentiment or a broader uh, social norm uh, criticizing hunting. Um, and I think that is maybe offset by, you know, the food movement. Lee believes that the food movement is, is wearing thin. Um, I like the food movement, and I always wish <laughs> it to be strong. Not only because I love food, but I, I'm not, I don't get bored of all sorts of neat and creative ways that I can utilize game and all the components of game. Yeah. I have
2: to tell you now, Matt is Anthony Bourdain shoved into a Polish carcass. Uh, <laughs> he, he's not your average food wild game cook, so uh, just be real careful. Well, You're not a representative well, member there, Matt.
1: Well, right. When when we did the podcast with Matt before, when Curtis and I were up in Edmonton, he, he gave us his breakdown of like this really special way he does does duck, uh, and then this it's when we were in the so, so field. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, there, Lee. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, Lee, it's, yeah, the, the, say same, it's
3: the same. Yeah, it's the same sandwich we had last fall. Yeah.
1: So, 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 Lee, this is your opportunity to get back at him for the um, <laughs> mismatched wool clothes and stuff. So, so, elaborate a little bit on this <laughs> this food movement. It's, well, uh, I mean, uh, it's I inspiring, I, but it's wearing
2: thin. Yeah, I don't. Neither Matt nor I uses the word "thin" and "food" in the same sentence very often. <laughs> um, and there's no way I'm going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. I've had so many great meals in the field and at his house. And you know what? His wife is a stellar Italian cook. It's just—it's the temple of consumption, really. That—it's the temple of consumption. So, no, I'm not going to say anything negative about Matt's cooking. It just doesn't exist.
3: No, no, but but but. <laughs> what i what i would like you to do is you know discuss some of the follies around the food movement and why that alone can't be you know we can't we can't uh, uh, be apologists just around that sure
2: yeah i will i will speak to that you know i was a member of the alberta conservation association board of directors for 21 years and they had a whole initiative to the public called harvest your own and they had these beautiful protein uh, s- demos and they had scads of snow geese coming in they showed how to prepare them. and it was trying to take the food Angle because it, it was so non-controversial. It got very little pushback And I think there's a risk in that we talked about earlier if we don't kill them They'll overpopulate and die of starvation or I'm doing it just for the food Basically that's saying hey to heck with you get off my back. I'm doing it for something for a reason I'm hunting for reasons that are totally socially accepted and defensible and we've glommed onto that sometimes and hidden behind that when the, the true picture is much more nuanced, deep, and and powerful. I, too, am a meat hunter now, but I've got to say it is not the primary motivation for me going out. It's a wonderful addition, but the primary motivation we've touched on earlier, it's the experience and the emotive connectivity to nature and the, my comrades. Uh, as a young man, it was the experience of actually uh matching wits with this big game animal. And there was an incredible thrill and novelty to that. And with some repetition, it evolved more to uh, enjoying the hunt and enjoying the camaraderie and the meat. And now it really is more about that flow experience, getting into the zone, total escape from uh, the civilized world. There are a lot of other values in it. Um, So, well, I'm not really sure where I'm going with all this. It's, it's we, we touch on about a thousand different topics as we go through this stuff, any one of which we could spiral off into the anti-hunting movement or firearms or food or whatever. But it's, um, I, just, I think that, say, I'm a meat hunter only. Uh, if you were to put that on a dollars per kilogram of meat, it would scare you to death. Maybe if you were a meat hunter only, you would save your hunting purchases and gas and time and just go to the supermarket and buy beef. Um, uh, so I can see, I can see that the people are probably on the verge of wearing that one out.
1: I think, I think that was a movement, you know, of promoting the food side. I mean, I think it really started with meat eater and Steven Rinella. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he really made the connection, um, cause that, that's him personally yeah. made the connection between hunting is how he makes food and mm-hmm. he loves to cook and do these wonderful things, you know, with the food. I remember even hearing a story one time where, you know, he he he, he would talk so much about taking the shanks, yeah, you know, off of a deer and putting in a slow cooker and, yeah. he, and he showed people how to do that and stuff and it, it's not new, he didn't invent it, I mean, you know, grandma was doing that 100 years ago yeah. kind of thing. Um, but, but it was, it was new to a lot of, of hunters. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know where I heard this story, but he actually was going through a game check somewhere in the States and he had to stop and and check his deer in or whatever. And, the the, um, the wardens at the game check or whatever recognized who, who he was. And they said, you know, since you've kind of become mainstream, we've noticed that the game check that more hunters now are bringing their deer out with their shanks on where before, I guess it would be legal to cut them off at the, uh-huh. at the joint and not take that. Um, so, so there was, there was a, a food movement around that. I mean, just the name yeah. meat eater, you know, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, Everybody picked up on it and they were running with it. Um, and, and I thought that was good because good it, it was showing a side of hunting, you know I think it was doing two things. you can do a lot more with wild meat than just sort of like it's a dry roast and you got to put a lot of gravy on it um, which brought more people into hunting because they are attracted to the food and the culinary aspect of you know of it and stuff. And so everybody glommed onto it. They were kind of doing it. They still do. Um, But I I somewhat kind of feel a little bit it was also a bit of a cover-up for the whole rise of the sentiment against trophy hunting. Yep. And it sort of seemed Mm -hmm. to be the counter to go, you know, oh, look, here's a picture of somebody in Africa with a giraffe. And you're like, Hey, check out this burger. <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like whoa. You know, slow cooked beer shank. You know, or yeah. whatever. And and to some degree, I think it was kind of like you know maybe what what you're feeling, Lee, is that it's to some degree, it's like, are we being honest, and are we doing it because it's what we care about, or we're doing it because we think that's the facade that we can get away with it? They'll get off of our back.
2: Well, I think some of each, uh, Mark. I think there should be one of the axioms of ethical take of an animal is full utilization to the extent you can. And and you should never waste animal. If you are, maybe not, pull, don't pull the trigger. But that's not the end of the story. There are a lot of other values we've touched on today that, that add to that mm-hmm. full experience. And if you're gonna give somebody that asks you this question the full picture, you need to be brave enough and honest enough to say, I find it deeply rewarding. I've I learned things, the whole litany of, of things and I eat every scrap of this, and I render my bear fat, and I keep the hide, and I, I've got jewelry made out of the teeth, and the claws are going to my nephews and nieces for Christmas presents, and they're thrilled with it. And they're scaring their teacher in the second grade by taking the claw in there and showing them. You know, there's and someday when you have more time, 40, 40 uh, installations later, when you have Matt back, you've got to get him to tell you the story of taking a grizzly bear cub to the public school.
1: Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I did we don't not- have time here. Curtis didn't you take a deer heart to class yeah I, oh, I took all kinds of stuff man yeah. but I'm, I'm pretty sure, sure science or something yeah. like that and it was like oh look what
0: Curtis brought and it was like yeah, oh. I'm pretty sure it was like as I was like I was like grade four or five and I just yeah I, I, I know yeah, right you're pretty young and, Threw it in a ziploc bag, and it's, you know, a ziploc bag half full of blood and a deer heart. And I walk into class and pull it out of my locker at lunch. And I'm like, "Check this out!" And everyone's like, great. "Oh my god, what's going on?"
3: <laughs> no, I show, when I brought a, I brought a live grizzly cub to to a classroom to to a school, and if I would do that today, the, the consequences would be horrific.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh jeez, oh, I think uh, our was it the last episode when we had Chad Stewart on from Michigan DNR yeah. or, or was it someone else they were talking about? They, they remember like going to high school and it was like, they stick their rifle in their locker oh, yeah. after oh, school, I, it was like, they go out and go deer hunting and then head home for, I, I, for I, I supper. Used to, and,
3: and you know, <laughs> I, I used to, uh, do the same. I remember bringing a thirty thirty and, uh, having it in my locker and just telling our principal, oh, I brought my, brought my hunting rifle in. Oh, that's, that's fine. Yeah, you know, my you know my dad's coming in. The...
1: <laughs> yeah, there's there's a the societal value shift. Yeah, has yeah, the
2: the oh, the, the conflation of of media uh, reported gun violence and hunting is something we all need to work to separate. The, the mm-hmm. argument has been made before that responsible firearm handling by hunter training, which is required by law, is one of the ways we inoculate society against these horrific of uh, uh, violent crimes done with firearms. Uh, kids that are raised hunting understand what comes out the uh, end and the repercussions of that, and they're very dearth to apply that towards humans. An inner, inner city person that doesn't have any connection to nature and doesn't get to shoot their firearm might be more inclined to use it that way. And so I think that there's a, an inverse relationship between hunting and the violence that's reported rather than a direct correlation.
1: That's super interesting, yeah. huh? Wonder if anybody's.
2: I didn't come. I didn't come up with that. that. Yeah, I didn't come up with that. that that's actually yeah. other people have written about that before. And, okay. But but I do think the simplistic black and white thinking of the fast-paced, short attention span, social media era today quickly says guns bad, guns hunting bad, and they it all gets mixed together instead of being parsed out and carefully inspected. And I think we need to be a little more diligent and more thoughtful about that.
1: Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Hey, fellas, this was an amazing Uh, discussion, gosh. You got us going i, I yeah, we did it's it just like we just we, i i I feel like man, we just got started there's kind of like like all these little <laughs> other issues that are tagged that would that, that we could that we could oh, dive into We i, I a could long time. i could see i could see another episode uh coming up with you guys absolutely mm-hmm. without by a all means so, yeah yeah we uh, really great. appreciate really appreciate your your higher level of thinking, um, and, and your, your, your dedication to this. And, and, and you guys are part of a, a of a network you said, right? Like like-minded folks yeah. like yourself, it's a, you yeah. just get together and, Talk through stuff like this, and so you know
2: what it was, Mark. It was a few years back. It was the salon concept where you get a group of people together, maybe yep. a, maybe there's beverages, and and you and you these are thoughtful people that like to discuss this, that are willing to learn and share their ideas. And I think we're up to seven or eight. And we there were some academics, or some government people. There was uh, there was some in, uh, environmentalists, and we would just sit and have polite discussion. The really the only rules mm-hmm. of this was to adhere to civility and decorum, and and trade ideas really widely ranging ideas sometimes we disagreed tremendously but we all learned from it and treated others as respectable equals and it it was it was just a very rewarding set of discussions um and it spun off a few things invited some other speakers to come in matt gave a really good uh hour-long seminar to a a group i mean it's just but it, it was mostly for us to sit around and have a more formalized hunting discussion one of our members dr howie harshaw is actually Gotten some of his research ideas from this group yeah. and has yeah. built some collaborations. So it it actually has worked out really well. And I'd encourage other thoughtful hunters to do the same thing, to find like-minded people and try out some of these crazy ideas and, and gain some perspective and gain some insight. Because, like that old African proverb, no one of us knows as much as all of us together. And that's mm-hmm. true for us too. You need to think outside of just the guy, at the barbers- guys at the barbershop. You need to cherry pick. You need to trophy hunt thoughtful people. Bring them together and try out some of your ideas. Grow and learn. Think about the future of this sport we all treasure so much, and and try to perpetuate it. It's our last kick at it. Some of, of us old codgers. This is our last best chance to, to influence the future. I think I'm probably the oldest in this this foursome, so I can say this. I'll be the first to time out, but. I want to I want to make a change before I leave. I want to give something back for all the wonderful stuff that's been given to me.
1: That's um, that's great advice. Yeah, Lee, I mean, Lee, maybe I, I love that idea.
3: Lee may be one of the oldest genealogically, but in, in terms of maturity level, we're all quite, you know,
1: well, we have an inner 12
3: year old. No, I'll admit. Yeah, that. that's
1: but that's part He's, of the appeal. And you still gotta get a spot prawn. You gotta. <laughs> well, listen. If, rest
2: if any of your listeners, if any of your listeners will take a newbie old guy under their wing and teach me how to hunt blacktails in these cut blocks, or teach me how to catch a blankety blank spot prawn, I'm I'm all over the internet. Tell them, to give me a call. Enlighten me.
1: I know. I know. Uh, no, just 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 the guy. Actually, he does a lot of. Uh, helping new people get started in hunting down, down in the lower mainland. Oh, good. Tonight. So good. yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll connect you up there. So right. um, yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. And um, thanks, guys. Curtis, go ahead.
0: Cool. Today's episode is once again, supported by iHunter. If you're interested in getting their public land subscription, head over to web.ihunterapp.com. Use the code THC Podcast for 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. It's really cool. We've been talking about it for quite a few episodes now. So if you haven't checked it out, I don't know why you're being so slow out of the gate, but (laughs) go check it out for sure.
1: It's hunting season's coming. Hunting season's coming.
0: It's a couple weekends away here. You're going to need it for sure. Uh, Yeah, so all that information is in the show notes. Go check that out once you finish this episode, if you haven't already. And thanks again to The Hideout for sponsoring this episode. Top notch food, top notch beer combined with a top notch atmosphere. We're big fans of the Hideout menu and they never disappoint. So if you feel like a night out or even ordering in, make sure that the Hideout restaurant and brew house is at the top of your list. Cool. I want
3: to go to the Hideout. Awesome. Sounds great. Yeah. We well, can. Oh, yeah. You
1: can. You can now. You're yeah. allowed to travel. That's great. You're okay. allowed to travel. One last thing I wanted to throw in, and this was a listener reached out. Um, to me um, to see if we could educate our listeners about a new um, program. So there is a a nonprofit charitable organization in Alberta called the Veteran Hunters Program. And you can find them online at theveteranhunters.com. And they're an Alberta-based, like I said, charitable organization. And their goal is to help veterans and first responders Suffering from PTSD or from injuries, acquire hunt opportunities. So, if you are a veteran or a first responder and you want some support to get out there and hunt, uh, go check out uh, the theveteranhunters.com because you can apply for these sponsored uh, hunting opportunities uh, in Alberta and BC, and I think a few of the um, eastern provinces as well they got things set up with guides and facilities uh, you just need to go on and apply the British Columbia chapter um, is actually kind of struggling to fill all of their um, openings for these sponsor- sponsored hunts so um, if you know a veteran or first responder um, tell them about the uh, veteranhunters.com uh, go on check them out you can support volunteer, donate, buy some of their um, stuff to help them out uh, in supporting veterans and first responders. So um, that was a really, really cool thing. And thanks for passing that on, Aaron. And uh, we'll do promote that a little bit more because that seems like a fantastic totally. cause for hunting. Totally. Fellas, thanks so much. Um, You're most welcome. I just, Thank uh, you. My I pleasure. just can't get over this, this visual image of uh, Cabela's um, um, poster child going duck hunting, like like and. <laughs> And the mismatched socks and wool pants and probably one leg shorter than the other, man, I just, I just, that's etched in my brain. As, oh, and, you, and the other thing that's etched in my brain is this, this, uh, the food angle of hunting is being inspiring, but it's wearing thin. Well,
3: you know, you, you, you don't have to etch it in your mind. You can, you can actually experience it. it and uh (laughs) so the invitation is out there um come out in late september i believe lee is going to come out and uh and uh we have uh we have all sorts of things to for you to get great mirth out of
1: no sounds sounds intriguing just have to take you right up on that because i just want to see this uh Oh, it's see something. This, um, it's rag, something. Ragtag hunting elephant. I love that, though. I mean, I think we need we need more of that. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Great conversation. Look forward to, to doing this again. And, um, Bell Geist, rest in peace. in peace. I hope you are experiencing the best wildlife habitat that you've ever seen in your career in your life. All right, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.